All right, hello everybody. Thanks for joining us today on the Five Oncast, your sometimes weekly source for insights into whatever I happen to care about at the time. <laughs> I'm your multidimensional co-host, Patrick Downs. Some may call me the modern Rod Serling, and today I am joined by the legendary Andy Paul. <laughs> I've titled today's episode, The Pod is a Long Cast, and this one's going to be about surviving the long and winding road of a life on current sales. Welcome to the oh, show. Oh, there we go. Yes. <laughs> Do you like the intro? <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's fabulous. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I'm sure you've done a lot of introductions into a microphone over your life. I'm assuming. Uh, more so over the last four or five years. Yes. Really, really. Do you have a favorite intro that you use for yourself? Well, it's hard to top the legendary, but I don't. I don't <laughs> use that for myself. Uh, <laughs> but um, no, just yeah, sales podcast host at this point. I love it. I love it. Um, so I like to start the show off with a couple personal questions. We talked sure. about this last time. Yeah. I, I swear I didn't prep him too much, folks. You, um, you warned me. Yes. I did. <laughs> I warned you. But we're going to do three, and I'll just get right into it. My first one, Andy, is what was the first thought that you had when you woke up this morning? Uh, just glad to be alive. Actually, <laughs> I mean, I've, I, all my life I've been a very optimistic person. I mean, I think it's one of the things that's carried me through um, my career and everything I've done is just, yeah, I look forward to every day. And uh, yeah, I, I had this friend that I used to, uh, so I'm a master swimmer and uh, he'd show up every morning for workouts and, and he was even more optimistic than I was. He'd walk in the locker room and say, Good day, gentlemen. It's another wonderful day to succeed. <laughs> I thought that's a good way to put it. So yeah, every day is an opportunity. And I really, as far back as I can remember, I've even in times of stress, I think that's sort of the thought that I've carried in mind to, to help me get through tough times is that, yeah, it's just another chance to live life and, and uh, look forward to what's going to happen. You said this is like as far back as you can remember, that's how you felt. Uh, did, yeah. Was that cultivated at all? Or is that something you were kind of intrinsically always had? That's a good question. I, I, um, I think intrinsically probably always have had it. Um, yeah, my parents were sort of typical. I think parents of baby boomer kids is that they were not, too terribly involved, but um, supportive and um, set high expectations for us. But on the other hand, you know, kept the, the attitude positive. And um, I think that had to be play into it. And then as I you know, got into college and you know, college was, was hard and there were a lot of hard things that, that went on. It was just like, I remember that's sort of the first time I was really conscious of, of being that way is just waking up and thinking, okay, what can I do today? I love that. I love that. Thank you for expounding. Uh, my next one is, uh, mm -hmm. have you ever been in love? Yes. Yes. I've, I've, uh, so yeah, I'm currently married to, well, I'll give you the log line of the through line story is, uh, yeah, I met the, Love my life in 1972, and 35 years later, we got married. Um, so that sort of tells the story. So yeah, I met my my wife in, in high school. We were high school sweethearts, and uh, but 
just sort of went separate ways in college and stayed in touch, but we didn't have the emotional intelligence to talk about how we really felt about each other at that time and ended up getting married to other people for 25 years. And when those marriages fell apart, uh, we just sort of fell back into it. I was a bit so, of a plot twist. I actually was not expecting yeah. that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, when I was, when I was, uh, turned 50, I, uh, was sort of curious what you know she was up to and we hadn't really talked probably for 10 years at that point um and uh yeah we just sort of seemed to be in similar stages in life at the same time and it took us a few years to actually end up meeting each other again in person and then yeah things happened quickly from there how long ago did you get married 10 years ago 10 years ago how do you feel like that changed the course of your life? Cause that's a pretty big shift. Like I said, it's, it's almost like a plot twist. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, it has been huge. Um, you know, it was, uh, as an individual, she was much more supportive of me personally in terms of things I wanted to do in my career. And, and so we got married, I was in San Diego. She lived in New York. She had what I call the real job. Uh, she's a, an associate dean and a professor at NYU School of Medicine, and I could do my business from anywhere. So I moved from San Diego to New York. And once there, I was sort of like, okay, yeah, I've several times in my career sort of reinvented myself. And at that point, I was saying, okay, what do I really want to do? And yeah, I was writing my first book and uh, start blogging, start you know, building a brand, a profile on social media, so on. And she was extremely supportive of that in a way that uh, hadn't been supported before. And, and so, yeah, it was transformational for me. This might actually feed into the next one, but my last question is, what memories do you typically go to for comfort when you're in distress or in a bad situation? Well, I mean, her. Yeah, my wife thinking. I mean, I think that's first and foremost. Um, yeah, as, as a relationship where the one of those strong connections that never really died over the course of time, even though we hadn't been together. And and um, yeah, it's everything for me. I'm gonna have to go back and retitle the episode "True Love Is Real" cast. Uh, <laughs> like that's yeah. gonna be the through line. <laughs> well, you know, when you it's wonderful when you when you find it take it um so yeah but uh yeah we no regrets about you know the marriages we had because we each have two wonderful kids as a result of it and yeah don't look back but it's all a matter of sort of consistent with everything else let's just look forward i love it i love it can you trace anything in your career to those stages do you feel like they're intertwined in a way and you've made moves in those periods i know a lot of people say that happens in connected to like relationship changes well they certainly yeah i mean if you've you don't want to wish divorce on anybody it's it's you know fortunately my ex-wife and i are still friends and as i said we have two great kids that you know we still do things together but um when you go through the tough times it has an impact on your performance for sure um you like to think that you're just soldiering through and no one can tell and you know, you look back and it's like, oh, yeah, that wasn't good. <laughs> I mean, it was just whether the energy's not right or you're just preoccupied and 
and so there were sort of two sort of short periods in my career where that uh, once when my ex-wife and I first separated, but then got back together. But then when we finally divorced, it was just, yeah, yeah, it's, it's as well as you think it's going, it's never appearing that way to other people. Uh, so you're, we're quite good at fooling ourselves about that. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just sort of fact of life. So, but yeah, you know, didn't sidetrack my career or anything. It was just sort of what was, was. Love it. So switching gears a bit, um, sure. main topic is the long and winding road of sales, right? Mm. Uh, you've been in the game for a while. It's 96 in sales. Is that, is that accurate or was it before? 1977? 77. Okay. All right. Well, I was going to you're looking, you're looking at me and you're thinking, you can't possibly be that old. And thank you. <laughs> you're <very welcome. laughs> what was your first sales job in 77? So first sales job, uh, right out of school, in sales, selling uh, computers to businesses for accounting applications. Um, so what were called mini computers at the time. And they were anything but mini, but mini compared to what preceded them. Um, and for a company called Burroughs, at the time Burroughs was the second largest computer company in the world behind IBM. And uh, yeah, my job, I was in San Francisco Bay Area, based out of Oakland. And uh, yeah, I focused on selling to um, the construction industry. So building contractors, road constructing, construction companies, uh, yeah, heavy industry construction companies, uh, a lot of infrastructure, you know, bridge builders and so on. Um, so that was sort of my my focus for the first two years before I got promoted into management. But yeah, I was out sort of prototypical field sales job, you know, based on office, we'd show up, we'd leave the office at 8.30 and go out and make calls, uh, drive to a business park or, you know, early, we had sort of an apprenticeship before we got started. Burroughs still had some legacy products that the, the newbies had to sell, which were these desktop adding machines they'd sell to bookkeepers and so on. And um, yeah, you had to go out and sell a certain number of calculators, certain dollar amount of calculators. And it's $5,000 worth, I believe, before you could uh, get trained to sell computers. And so, yeah, it's 30, 40, 50 calls a day. Drive to a business park, park my car, walk door to door to door. $5,000 worth of calculators. I've never even thought of calculators in the thousands. It's just a well, concept. Yeah. Well, they, they cost about 250 bucks, but a piece. They're big. They're the size of a small microwave oven. But um, yeah, I sort of yeah, was into it and was doing it. And finally, I said, God, you know, there's got to be a, a better way. And so we actually had one model of calculator that cost about $2,000. And it was a programmable calculator. You programmed with mag stripe cards that looked like credit cards or hotel keys. And you programmed in assembler. So I taught myself how to one weekend, I decided, well, I don't want to go out and sell, you know, 20 at 250 bucks a piece. I just want to sell two of these big ones and be done with it. And so that's what I did. So I took the manual home one weekend, taught myself how to program in assembly code basically, and uh, found a client Pretty soon thereafter, they wanted me to create sort of a billing program for them, which I did. Uh, they were a, a chocolate company, so it's always fun to go down there. And uh, then I sold another one, I think, to an auto dealer for some sort of like credit calculation. 
and yeah, got done with it reasonably quickly at that point. And so that's always sort of the hallmark of the way I've tried to sell, which is, you know, what's the, what's the best way to sell the biggest thing I can uh, that, you know, provides the biggest benefit to, to the company. And uh, yeah, if I have to go teach myself how to program, teach myself how to program. That's wild. I, I can't imagine doing that like today, <laughs> like in a weekend. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, it's just like, Amazing. you got do what you want to do. Right. Is, is there was no one telling me no. And actually I have this tendency to ignore people to tell me no. And um, yeah, it just seemed like a more efficient way. Cause I want to be trained how to, we couldn't be, I said, couldn't be trained to sell the computers. So we had, hit that milestone and I wanted to get trained to install the big stuff. Um, so yeah, I just took a different, different path than most people did. Do you think that's part of why you've been able to last this long? Cause typically most people when they're in sales and they burn out, it's cause they're just kind of being, they're just doing what they're being told. It's like do this amount of calls, hit this number and then they get burned out because they're sick of doing the same thing every day. Yeah. Well, I think it's a problem. Yeah. I think that managers don't do enough to try to develop uh, people to become the best version of themselves. And that sometimes means selling a way that's unique to their strengths, right? So I was, I guess, fortunate enough to have managers that, that gave me enough rope to hang myself um, and said, yeah, yeah, you want to do it that way? Sure, go ahead. And there have been multiple points throughout my career where that's, that's happened. Um, so you, in sales, you pay the consequence if you can't you can't execute. You know, if you're asked to do something different and you can't pull it off, then you're going to be gone. But um, I did. And so, yeah, I've always sort of wanted to do things my way. And partially because I'm not, you know, I'm an introvert. I'm not a conventional salesperson in that regard. It's still a little harder for me to meet strangers. And But I've, you know, developed a way of being effective and engaging at a human level with other people and, and building that personal relationship that's, that's so critical. But yeah, I sort of envied the people that it came so easily to. Um, but yeah, I kept my own way of doing it. And then when it came to like, you know, developing my pipeline and so on, I always tended to run relatively slim on my pipeline because I was a fanatic and I am a fanatic about qualifying opportunities. So I've, if someone has a qualified opportunity for me, I thought I was going to win it and I would win a high fraction of it. So, you know, my pipeline was maybe two X compared to the five X that you see in most SaaS companies and so on. Because for me, it wasn't enough to say that somebody was qualified to buy a product sort of like mine. They were qualified to buy my product. And that's the way that, that I approached it. And so, um, you know, if I was effective at putting forward my value proposition, that was unique, hopefully, and they were qualified to buy it, then I said, yeah, they can stay. If not, you know, we, I didn't pay any attention to them. So it was really you know, placing bets to some degree that you could execute, that I could execute uh, once I had a qualified prospect. But that's, for me, that was how I wanted to do it because then I could apply more of my time to those opportunities that were really qualified. And I thought if I could do that, then I would increase my odds of winning. Mm. I love that. And like that, that fits you, right? That's the kind of person you are. You, yeah. you make a bet on yourself. And, yeah. uh, and I know when we were talking, you, you talked a lot about personal reinvention too, which yeah. in a way is betting on yourself. Absolutely. Uh, what does that mean to you specifically though? When you said that to me over email, well, what did you mean? 
Well, it's, it's, it's investing in yourself to learn something completely new, right? And a new challenge. And so, yeah, I was having a conversation or with a younger rep last week about, you know, how do you make career choices in sales? And he was always talking about, or he, not always, but he was talking about, you know, the money and so on. And, and I said, you know, for me, it was always about what am I going to learn? Because if I, to maintain my interest in it is, yeah, I want to always be learning something new. And so for me, the two most important factors were, you know, is this an opportunity where I was really going to learn something new and the person I was working for, were they going to be the person that could teach me that? And that's how I made my decision. So I wanted to work for really smart people uh, in industries that perhaps I hadn't had experience in before. So I wasn't uh, really for a good chunk of it. wasn't leveraging one experience into the other. Um, though I did that in a couple of cases, but it's, you know, it's just do something different. And that's for me is what's kept it interesting. So that's what the reinvention was. Is like, yeah, I'd never been a consultant before I started my own company. Uh, I'd never written a book before. You know, it's a lot you have to learn to write a book. There's a lot you have to learn to, start, you know, blogging and start podcasting and all these things I've been doing for the last nine, 10 years, um, they were brand new to me. It was great. You know, the later stages of my career is to be so excited about what I could learn and that's new. And it's still true today. You know, I, I have 820 episodes of my podcast as of today. We're still doing three episodes a week. And I love it because every time I talk to somebody, I learn something new. I have a mentor that said, like, if he's not doing something that's giving him butterflies, he feels like he's in the wrong place. Like, I, like, I want to get butterflies, like, once well, a month at least. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I don't know, about seven years ago, I was looking for a coach to help me on public speaking. And, yeah, I narrowed it down to two people, one of whom was this woman named Patricia Fripp, who's very well-known public speaker in sales and marketing world and uh, past president of National Speakers Association and so on. And she's this very sort of small but intimidating, formidable personality, uh, British, and um, though lives in San Francisco. And uh, for rock fans, her brother was the famous rock guitarist, Robert Fripp. And um, so, yeah, I interviewed Patricia and this other gentleman, and both came highly recommended. And at the end, you know, I decided to go with Patricia and my wife said, why? And I said, because she scared the hell out of me. <laughs> and that's where you have to gravitate to, right? It's gravitate toward the things that scare you. And certainly writing a book, you know, putting yourself, your opinions on a page and putting it out there is incredibly daunting. Um, and it, that's it, scared the hell out of me. Uh, podcasting, same thing, public speaking, you know, everything I've done uh, over the last, 10 years, but all throughout my career before that. Um, yeah, selling a lot of stuff internationally. We were selling some of the first systems of their type in China and India. And yeah, I went to the Soviet Union, sold some there. And it's just, yeah, it was all sort of scary, but uh, fun. I don't think anybody on their deathbed would be like, oh man, I wish I didn't get on that stage and do that speech. <laughs> like, I wish I didn't make that career move. Like that's the stuff yeah. that you need to look back at and be like, yeah, you're not going to regret it. There's no way. No, and the experience you get from it. And yeah, if people disagree with you, so what? I mean, that's your fear, right? Somebody's going to say, well, that's wrong. Um, and that's sort of the bar I used when I started public speaking. My wife had asked me, well, yeah, 
how'd it go? And I said, well, no one stood up and called me an idiot. So I think it's okay. <laughs> so, uh, and people rarely do though. They might on social media, but not in person, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's so much fun to do those things. And, and yeah, I sort of wish I'd started a little bit earlier in my career, but on the other hand, yeah, you know, I was gathering knowledge that I could use in this, you know, that I could impart to people. Why do you think you've stayed in sales specifically with a lot of this? It just because it's, I said, it's this opportunity to learn, right? I mean, I tell people that my podcast is perhaps the most selfish thing I've done in my life because, you know, I've talked to all these really smart people, you know, so far 820 smart people that I've learned from. I always looked at sales in the same way as, you know, as I going out meeting a customer, typically they were a prospect. Yeah. For the most part, they're smart people, successful business people. They, you know, uh, were in a position to make decisions for, you know, systems worth tens of millions of dollars and so on. So it was just fun to meet people and learn. And, and for now 13 years of my career, I was doing a big chunk of it overseas. So in Europe and in Asia and Australia, South America, you know, where else, you know, you get exposed to different cultures, different people, different ways of looking at things that, that, um, yeah, I just found it was fascinating. So as much of that, then it wasn't really ever really about the product I was selling. I mean, it wasn't like I felt passionate about the product. It was, though I was you know, in terms of, I thought they delivered great value to the people that are using it, but are the other things that really, you know, got me on the airplanes and got me over there is the, the people. Yeah, there's not a lot of jobs where you get paid to just go talk to people all day. That is a, a big benefit. <laughs> yeah, well, and they, that enjoy it because I think, again, I think that's some of the perspective that salespeople lose is they think that selling is something they do to people. And yeah, I learned from mentors early on that you know, to be successful, selling is actually something you do with the prospect. And this is a joint, you know, a joint journey that you take and start from that premise and it's a completely different way of approaching it. And I think sellers miss out too much when they get thinking about, you know, it's sort of a, a destination as opposed to the journey itself. Yeah. A lot of the language gets turned into like this person did something to me kind of thing. This person yeah. lied to me. They didn't buy because of this. And yeah, it's oppositional mindset. Adversarial. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's sort of the way that I, I use that term adversarial is, you know, people treat it like a trial uh, <laughs> where you've got lawyers, you know, arguing a case. That's not really the perspective you want to have. It's because that's all about persuasion and people, this natural resistance to being persuaded. So, you know, I look at it more from perspective of how can I influence the choices they're going to make um, through the actions that I take to ask great questions and to really understand and keep asking until I truly understand what it is they're trying to achieve and how we can best help them. That's again, a different mindset, different perspective about how you approach it, but that's the one that, that keeps you in the game for a long time. Those skills specifically with your influence, how has that impacted how you interview and host a podcast? That's a good question. Um, well, I think it's, it's due really down to the curiosity. Yeah. You know, I, I, have written in the past that, you know, I graduated college, I had no discernible job skills at all. So I went into sales and the only thing I brought with me into sales was an insatiable curiosity and a competitive streak. 
a mile wide. And that's still fundamentally the case, right? It's, it's this, this curiosity, as I've been talking about throughout the episode, is what drives me. It's what you know, motivates me. And yeah, I, you know, people think that when you say influencers persuasion, that, that you're not competitive, that you're, you know, it's a soft approach. And it's like, no, furthest from it. I mean, I, I sold a lot in my career and I was hugely competitive. I hated to lose. Um, and so I tried to do everything in my power ethically to not lose, you know, and so it was exercising my creativity about, okay, do I really understand the problem the customer is trying to solve? And if I do, how can we be creative and come up with a way to solve it that gives them more value and really shuts out the competition? And so we, we're always looking at perspective of, you know, how can we, I use the term, how can I take this prospect off the market? That was my, that was, that was what I was trying to do. I was trying to make them unavailable to my competitors. And if I could do enough on the front end of the deal in terms of the questioning and the relationship we built and the, and truly coming to an early understanding of what it is they were trying to do. When people feel understood, that's a huge source of value to them. And it's a key differentiator. If they think you really understand them, because it's one of the real complaints about sellers. They don't understand. They don't know enough about our business to, to provide insights or help us go the path we want. And yeah, I tried to go the opposite direction. And so I, well, especially when I was working bigger deals, is I, I typically knew yeah, months before the decision was made that I was probably going to win because we had hit that point where I knew they feel understood by me. And at that point, we'd continue to build on that and present them with the options that, that were perhaps the best options for helping them achieve their desired outcomes. And so I love that, that ability to be really creative about that. Um, because again, you're helping somebody, you're sort of transforming their lives in the, in the, in the process. And it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I feel like it's, it's weird because I love doing that too. But in software sales, there's this whole culture on both the buyer and the seller side of give me a demo, cool, buy, that kind of thing. And yeah. then everybody internalizes that when they sell. And not everybody's like that, but everyone just assumes that. So anytime I take a demo, it's really no one says anything to me besides, hey, here's our dashboard. And they just walk me through the entire product. Mm -hmm. there's, no, there's no questions. It's every time. I don't think I've had a single demo that's not like that. It's absurd. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, the, <laughs> the customers don't really want that. They just sort of think, well, this is what we should do because this is the way it's been done to us. Um, yeah. Break the mold there. Believe me. Yeah. The reason this a customer or prospect talks to a salesperson is not necessarily because they want to, but because they have to, right? When, when people make decisions, there's something at risk right? It could be, we're risking the potential outcome, we're risking uh, not the you know, company not changing some you know, aspect of the business that when they want to change by using this new tool. Uh, the decision maker perhaps is risking their career by making the wrong recommendation. So there's all this risk. So they want to talk to somebody because they want to validate their assumptions. They want to validate what they think is the right decision, the right choices to make by talking to another human being. So they want to talk to you, but you know, they're just going to go the easy route as you talked about. Yeah, I just do the demo, da, da, if they think you've got nothing else to add. And so it's really up to you as a seller to demonstrate that 
yeah, you can add more value to that than what they're expecting. And this is how you're going to do it. And it could be, I think a lot of one imperative, I think for sellers today is that, you know, not enough emphasis put on understanding business itself. You know, we'll call it business acumen, but it has a huge impact on the questions you ask, uh, the follow-up, more importantly, the follow-up questions you ask and your ability to truly understand what the buyer's concerns are. And so if I was listening to the show and saying, well, geez, what, what could I work on first and foremost to help sort of break this, this pattern you talked about? I would just, I'd be reading business books. I'd make sure you understand how to read an income statement, a balance sheet, you understand ratios in business, you understand how business operates, you understand how your customer's business makes money. Um, without that understanding, it's, it's always gonna be superficial and transactional. And you gotta move beyond the transactional to break that, that pattern that you're talking about. People love talking about it too. You can even just ask. I, before, like, oh, yeah, they, early on in an industry, hey, how do you guys make money? And they go on for 20 minutes about it. People love to talk about themselves and that's okay. Um, let them. I mean, people, that's how you build a relationship. You let people talk about the things that's important to them. And you just need to ask the right questions and yeah, they'll, they'll pour their hearts out about it. Um, you know, it, it's, I think that, that again, sellers, yeah, just have to do more reading and, and learning about things. So there's this uh, thing called bounded rationality. The Herbert Simon was a psychologist, economist, Nobel Prize winner back, well, this, he did this work in the 50s, but I think he won the prize later in life. But uh, where he says, look, you know, people basically look at things from two perspectives. You know, they look at it from, and this is part of it, it's not the, the main thrust of that, that philosophy, but people look at things in two perspectives as a decision maker is, what's this mean for the business? What's this mean for me? And so rarely do I hear sellers talk about, you know, the, analyzing a call they had, or you look at their call description, and it's like, yeah, you didn't ask the question. So what's this gonna mean for this person? You know, what's the impact gonna be on them personally? And so when you look at your questioning, you sort of look at it a little bit like a, a funnel, but start with the bigger one. You know, what would be the impact on the business if they could do this? What would the value be they could derive from it? Great, what about your, your division that you work in? Get closer, what about your team? What's it gonna mean for you? And when you have that information, you've got so much more information about how the decision's gonna be made. That you, and what's important to them, people just don't dig deep enough. And it's just a matter of questions. And if you build the relationship and you have the trust, they'll open up and tell you. I feel like I've learned a lot here. Yeah, it's a, this was a selfish conversation. Thank you for laying that <laughs> on me. Um, Thank you for just, having me. It's been fun. Of course, it has Great been. Great questions. Thank you. And as we part, uh, imagine that there is a, a young sales youngster guy sitting on a porch, sipping some coffee, uh, whistily thinking, uh, do I get out of this field? Like, what do I do? What do I do now? <laughs> what, what is your parting word of wisdom to them? Stay in it. Because I think one of the huge values in sales is that you, it's one of the few places where you're really judged for what you actually do. And that's always been important for me. I, a staff job, yeah, what are you being judged on, right? Can you really measure what your contribution is? I mean, in some cases you can, other cases it's a little more obscure. And so, yeah, I think if, if you really want to have a life where 
the rewards that come to you are based purely on or largely on the efforts, your own efforts, then and the own work you put into it, then I think sales is the best place to be. I think so too. They're gonna have to like drag me out dead at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, at my age, that's a, a more likelihood, but uh, yeah, so I agree. It's it's what we're staying in, and, and there's we're gonna see some changes coming with technology that'll be very exciting if, if people are willing to use the technology in the right way. And uh, yeah, I think it's, the future is still exciting. It is. I think we'll get to a point where you're actually doing more of the fun part, which is just having conversations. I'm excited I, for that. Yeah, I believe that's the case. And I think if, if we were using the technology correctly today, even there's been a huge infusion of technology into sales in the last 10 years, especially in the last five years. But I think that uh, some of that would be happening now, but unfortunately it's a lot of it's being used just to automate bad behaviors rather than find a way to amplify good behaviors. That's a great note to, le to leave on Andy. I appreciate that. Um, for people that want to connect with you online, mm. what is the best way for them to do so? LinkedIn. LinkedIn. So LinkedIn. So it's the usual preamble on LinkedIn and it's real Andy Paul except no substitutes. Um, but uh, real Andy Paul or just search for Andy Paul, you'll find me. Uh, only one with the podcast, I believe. So, but yeah, that's the most effective way. And then um, you can always email me at andy at andypaul.com. Anything you want to plug? Anything coming out? Uh, well, yeah, listen to the podcast. I mean, not to compete against yours, but you know, sales enablement podcast with Andy Paul. Um, yeah, we've have, we've have 820 episodes. Uh, the episode that was released today was really fun. It was uh, interviewed my first sales manager, uh, which was a gas. So uh, I urge people to go listen to that. But you know, we've had some great episodes recently, also dealing with more topical issues like uh, mental health and sales, uh, sexism and sales, and so on. That that I think uh, people really need to listen to. I love it. I'm going to go listen to that right after this, Andy. Well, I appreciate you being here. And uh, if anybody else wants to connect with me or Andy online, yeah, go to LinkedIn. I'm just waiting for one person to say Twitter or something different. It's always LinkedIn. But thanks for listening to the Five On Cast for the sometimes not weekly insights into whatever I care about at the time. I'm again your immaterial co-host, Patrick Downs, the Dr. Manhattan of the modern age. I'm different this time. You can connect with me on LinkedIn and follow Five On Friday on LinkedIn, YouTube, and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and Anchor. You are beautiful just the way you are. Please don't ever change. Catch you next time. <laughs>